So last week, as we uh, took a look at Ruth, the redeeming love of God, we had the opportunity to listen in as Naomi had developed what seemed to be on the surface as a scandalous plan for Ruth to propose to Boaz. And we, as we read through and listened to, we were on our, the edge of our seats as Ruth in the middle of the night goes to the threshing floor and she waits for Boaz to fall asleep. And when he falls asleep, she comes close to him and she uncovers his feet. And when he awakens, she asks him to, asks him to spread his wings over her and to serve as her redeemer. We saw as Boaz was completely overwhelmed with joy that Ruth would make herself available. And just as we start to think that the story is going to have a happy ending, we learned that even though Boaz wants to redeem Ruth, he cannot because there is a closer redeemer. So today we will hear the exciting conclusion of Ruth, the redeeming love of God. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to turn, take it out and turn with me to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4, as we've been walking through each chapter a week, we have so far come to discover three truths. And today we're going to learn a fourth one. So the three truths are the first week we learned that the decisions that we make, that we choose to make today, direct the path of our lives and ultimately tell the stories of our lives. The second week we took a look and we learned that God's character is a character that's already defined. Who he is and what he says he is 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 already defined. But those that seek to follow him... He has to develop a godly character within. So if we hope to follow God, he's in the process of developing this godly character in us. And then truth number three, last week we learned that because of our godly character, it's possible for us to be placed in positions that may be compromising, but we can do it without giving in or without compromising. And then this week, hope that we'll be able to to learn the importance of living with integrity, even if it means risking our fears and our future and our feelings. So we can live with integrity in this world. So this fourth act of Ruth, this fourth, fourth act in the book of Ruth begins as we will see Boaz following through with integrity. He wants to redeem, he wants to, to marry Ruth, but he has to live within the boundaries that God has set. God has said that this is the way it is. If you hope to be a redeemer, then what you've got to do is you've got to redeem everything that goes along with it. So these are the bounds. He says, first of all, if if there's land included, then you need to redeem the land. If there's a closer relative that's in need, you must redeem their land. You must also redeem any uh, viable or available women to be your wives. You must take them as your wives. And then you must also seek to perpetuate the name of the clan in which you're redeeming. So there's three things that involve in that. So you must redeem the land, you must redeem uh, the women, and you must perpetuate the lineage. And so as we begin, we see that Boaz wants and seeks to desire to live with integrity, even if it risks his future and his feelings. So let's see how this begins to play out. Now, as we, we come to verses one and two of chapter four, I want us to be mindful of the fact that the customs of this day that we're going to read are different than ours today. And many times there's a lot of customs that you're going to see here that, that don't really translate into our culture and they can be challenging for us to understand. 
Uh, so this is a, in this process of redeeming, it is a transaction, but not all of everything in here is considered property. So there is property in land, but the women that, the, the woman that is going to be redeemed is not a piece of property that is being exchanged. Um, she's a woman. Um, so it, it's easy if you read through this to maybe try to interpret what's taking place and see her as a piece of property. She is not. She is a woman. But there are certain customs that they must follow through. In the same way our culture today has customs that we walk through uh, if we hope to be married. So what I want us to see, verses 1 and 2, here we go. Let's jump in and see how Boaz begins. Now Boaz has gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz has spoken came by. So Boaz says, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. What I want us to see is that Boaz is going to extra measures to live with integrity. Boaz goes to the place where business happens. He finds himself going to the gate of the city and it's there, is, he knows and everyone knows that's the place where you do business because when you do business, it's not behind closed doors, but when you wanna do business and you wanna live with integrity, you do it before the people. You do it in the place where people know that's where you're supposed to go. So he goes to the place of business and he goes to meet with the Redeemer. So he goes there and waits for this specific person to come by. Now, we don't know who this Redeemer is. We don't know much about him because scripture doesn't even give us his name. But we know that he's the one. And so Boaz waits for the Redeemer to come by. And then what does he do? He continues to live out this character and this integrity by bringing 10 elders now, the law stated he only needed two witnesses to, to observe this transaction to make it right. But he asked for 10. So he wants 10 elders to come here so that they could at any moment, if they go outside of the bounds of the law, that one of them could call a foul. Or if they stay within the bounds, then, then they have more witnesses to say, this is legal, this is right, this is true. So Boaz is doing a lot of work to make sure that he's on the up and up, that he's living with integrity. And so we see he begins to have this conversation. Look with me in verses three and four. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So Boaz goes to this redeemer and says, you have the right to redeem the land because you are the closest relative to Elimelech. If you don't, I will. And then in a shocking turn, something happens. He takes takes that step of faith and he goes to the redeemer and says, if you will redeem it, redeem it. If not, I'll do it. And the redeemer says some words that from the worldly perspective, make us angry, right? Because the redeemer says, I will redeem it. And there's parts of us that read this and we want to say, Boaz, what are you doing? Boaz, you have just made the biggest mistake of your life. You've taken this beautiful story because everyone wants a beautiful story, right? You've taken the potential of a beautiful story and you've just blown it. The woman that you love, the woman that you want to redeem, the woman that you want to draw close to you is going to be living in the arms of another man. How do you feel about that? 
you've just blown it. We want to go to Boaz and say, Boaz, just forget about all of this redeeming business. You love the woman. Go, go marry her because you love her. And I think we're tempted in our life and, and we're tempted to look at Boaz and say, isn't love what's most important after all? Like, isn't love the most important thing? Or is the law of God more important than love? Is the law of God more important than what you, what you think to be true, what you know to be true, what you, you feel in your being? Or is there something that's greater over our lives? You know, I'm tempted to think, not tempted, I, I think, that Boaz here is in a, a position that many times in our own lives we find ourselves in. Maybe, maybe not to the same degree. There's, I don't know any of you guys, kinsmen, redeemers. Okay, maybe not. But we, but we find ourselves in a, in a very similar place where we are in our lives, we're followers of Christ, and, and God says, these are the bounds. So it's almost like we're living life on a, on a highway. Now on a highway, what you have on the left and on the right of the highway is guardrails, right? Those guardrails are there. They're, they're set in place for you to know where safety is. Right? If you go beyond the guardrails, sometimes there's a, a damaging cliff that will, will take your life or you go this way, there's oncoming traffic the other way. And so the, whoever's designed the railroads or the highways, not railroads, the highways have put guardrails on the road for you to say, if you want to stay safe, if you want to arrive alive, do your best to stay within these bounds. In much the same way, that's the way God has, has set for our lives. He says, I have, I've placed for you guardrails. In your life, if you want to have a life that leads to me, these are some guardrails that I've given to you. Now you have the, the right while living on those guardrails. You can go from the left lane to the right lane. You can speed up, you can slow. You have all kinds of freedom. But none of us, as we're driving on the road, look at the, the guardrails and say that they're oppressive. Right? How many of you, like, that's a, stop oppressing me, guardrails. I want to go over there. We don't do that. So, so many times we look at, at God's laws and his, his rules and the way that he, he wants us to live and we call them oppressive. And when tempted, when we coming down the highway of life towards God, when a situation comes up like this, we have a tendency to allow two things to interfere with our ability to reason the right way. You see, in this scenario... We can look at Boaz and we can say, Boaz is in the place where he's got two driving forces that can control him. One, he could allow his feelings to control him. He loves Ruth. He has love for her. And if he doesn't follow through in the bounds that God has set, he is potentially giving up that position or the opportunity to love. Or he has the opportunity to be driven by fear. Because who knows the future? He doesn't know the future. He believes that God has brought everything to this point in his life where he has the opportunity to marry Ruth. But there's fear. And I'm so thankful that he shows us the right way to respond. Boaz doesn't freak out. Boaz is not driven, allowing his, his love or his feelings towards this person or his fear about the future to trump the truth of God. That's a lesson that we need to learn today. Because there's so many times that our feelings can mislead us. 
So many times we can be led by fear and it causes us not to trust in God. But we must choose to live with integrity and I'm thankful, which we're gonna see in a moment, that Boaz chooses the integrity route. He chooses to remain within the bounds that God has set and it's by living in those bounds that he actually finds freedom. Look with me in verses five and six. Then Boaz says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Ah, this is like the best part about the story. Right? It is the beautiful part about the story where God and Boaz and everything like comes together in the right way. Boaz goes to this redeemer and he says, ah, 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 not so fast. You can't just redeem the land, but with that land comes a woman and comes the responsibility to seek to perpetuate the name. It's these same boundaries that turned to blessing because Boaz chose to say that. And because he chose to, he says to her, if you choose to redeem the land, you've got to marry the Moabite woman and you also must seek to perpetuate the name of Elimelech. And I love verse six because the redeemer responds. He says, I, I want the land. That would make me in a better financial position. It would be something great that I could continue to hand on to my children and to their children, but I can't go that next layer and the next layer. I cannot redeem Ruth. We don't know much why. All we know is that he doesn't want to. Maybe he says that he cannot. So maybe he's already married or maybe he doesn't want to dilute his bloodline with this Moabite blood. We don't know. And really, we shouldn't care because Boaz now has the right to redeem Ruth. All of the, the boundaries and, and all the obstacles that were in the way at the beginning of this book now are, are cleared out of the way and Boaz has the right to step in and redeem Ruth. And now we see they carefully walk through the customs, verses 7 through 10. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and it was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and all to Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are my witnesses this day. Again, there's a lot of stuff in there that is, that is cultural, but basically what I want us to see is that Boaz is careful to walk through the customs. He is willing to do what it takes to do what is right so that this thing that he's about to do could be right in the sight of men and in the right in the sight of God. And then we see the elders give, elders and those present give an amazing blessing. 
Look at me, verses 11 and 12. Then all the people who were there at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in, in, in Pephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This is significant because the elders and the people there are, are praying to God for a couple things. They're, this is a big deal. And sometimes we get caught in the names and, and all those other things. And sometimes it's easy for us just to gloss over and say, okay, they're going to get married. It's all done. But I think there's beauty in being able to walk through Scripture slowly at times. For see here, the, the elders are asking God to bless this couple. First, they're asking that God would grant this foreigner, this, this woman, a child. For we know that she, has, she was married for 10 years to Malon. And in those times, she was not able to conceive a son or another child. And so in some ways, they're asking that the Lord would come now and open the womb of Ruth in an amazing way. Next, they also pray that Ruth would have a special place and a special purpose. They're asking that God would place her among the matriarchs of Israel in the same line as Rachel and Leah. Remember Rachel and Leah? They were Jacob's wives. And from Jacob through Rachel and Leah, who came? Well, we know that they had 12 sons. And those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. So they're praying that this child would perpetuate the purpose of God. This child somehow would fit into the greater plan, the greater scheme of God. But I also want us to see what's taking place here is God is in the purpose and in the process of redeeming a disgraceful past. You see the name Perez there? Do you know the backstory to Perez? Anyone? The well, I don't expect you to answer, but in your mind, think if you can think back to who Perez was. I want us to know and, and be reminded that Perez was the result of a dis disgraceful kinsman redeemer. You see, Judah, many, many years before, had a son. He actually had three sons. And one of his sons' name was Ur. Ur married Tamar. And Ur was an evil, wicked man, so God allowed him to die. And Tamar needed to be redeemed, so Judah gave Tamar another one of his sons. This son himself, too, was also evil, and so he soon died. And then it came time for Tamar to be redeemed by Judah's youngest son. The challenge is Judah's youngest son was really young. And so Judah goes to Tamar and says, when my son is of age, he will redeem you. He will marry you. Well, that turned out to not be true because the youngest son became of age and he ended up marrying someone else. And so there Tamar is in a state of real need. She needs to be redeemed. And all of the kinsmen are gone. So what does she do? She devises a plan that she's gonna go in while, um, while Judah makes himself available and she's going to have a son with Judah. And you know the name of that son? His name was Perez. Perez was the son of a disgraceful kinsman redeemer. Perez is born. And as we know, and we can see here, that Boaz is a descendant of Perez. Boaz now is in the place 
has the opportunity to be a dignified kinsman redeemer. And he has the opportunity to do it right. And he does. It's, it's amazing to me how we see in, in the word of God how when we walk with God, when we seek to try to, to with his power and with his, his presence, when we seek to live within those bounds that he gives us, that we have, the, we have the opportunity to not make the same mistakes as those that have gone before us. Now, I don't know this morning if you come from a, a, the lineage that is so godly that your, your parents and your grandparents and your great-great-grandparents and your great-great-grandparents were ex- exemplifer, exemplary, really good examples <laughs> of being godly. I don't know if you have, that's a part of your story. If you come from a family where everyone was godly and you're just living in the godly past or living, in your, living out your godly way in the same way that your parents did and their parents and their parents. Or maybe you're here today and you come from a lineage that's not so godly, not so beautiful. Maybe your parents or your grandparents or your great-great-grandparents weren't people of integrity. Maybe you can look to their past and you can, you can see that they did things, they said things, they were things. They were not holy and not pure. Things that you're not proud of. But I want you to know, as a follower of Christ, you do not have to make the same mistakes. Your past, though it may be shameful, does not have to be your story. Your story can be the story of God redeeming all of that shameful stuff. If you choose to walk in his way, he can take things that were shameful and he can make them beautiful. He can take things that were lost and he can make them right. You see, Boaz had the opportunity, and we see that he did. He didn't have to follow in the way of Perez. But Boaz and his name is, will be, is and will be remembered for generations. And then we come to the story in verses 13 through 17, where we see the happily ever after. Look with me. After all of this, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife, And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave to him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So they marry and they have a son, and God is faithful to make Naomi's house full again. As we come to the ends of this biblical account, I, I think that there are lessons that we can learn. This is not just something that took place so many years ago, but there are evidences in this passage and in this book that speak to our hearts and our needs today. One of the greatest things I think the whole book of Ruth tells us and shows us is that our lives are telling our story. 
We have a story to tell. There's a story that's being written about us, about who we are. And it's being written every single day by the decisions that we make and the paths that we choose. Our lives are telling a story that will be told to future generations. And the lives and the story that our lives are telling as we, those of us that follow God, what I want us to see is that in this, the stories of our lives are not always a straight path. From the moment you come to know Christ to the moment that he calls you home is not a straight path. Your journey in following God is going to take lefts and rights and ups and downs. And sometimes you're going to feel like you're following God in circles. Our lives are not straight. Our lives are not simple. But the thing that we can see from this story and almost any other page that we open up in the word of God is though the path is not straight, it's not simple, we do get there. We get there. Ruth is the perfect example. Naomi is the perfect example of, and Boaz are the perfect example of when we follow God, we get there. Maybe you're here today and you can think about your life where you're at right now. As your life and the story of your life is is unfolding, you may find yourself in one of these different chapters that we've been looking at. Maybe, Maybe you find yourself living through the chapter today of that of Ruth. Maybe you're in the place right now where you're just learning how to walk with God. Maybe in the not too distant past, there was a a time in which you realized that you weren't walking with the Lord, that you were an enemy of God and God in his grace and his mercy came close to you and you came close to him and you were able to make that profession where you said, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And you turned your life, you repented of your old life and you gave your life over to the Lordship and the saving work of Jesus Christ. And maybe from that moment, you've been walking through this this process of learning to walk with God. You come to Ruth and you see that it's hard work. Take steps of faith. There are challenges, but yet the Lord provides. And so maybe you're beginning just to see with new eyes how God is providing for you, how God is helping you in your journey. Be encouraged. Because you get there. Or maybe the chapter of your life that you're walking through right now is, is a season similar to Naomi, where you're walking through a series, a season of, of brokenness and bitterness. Maybe you're in the place where the hurts and the pains of life are real. Some days you wake up and you can barely lift your head because the oppressiveness of life just makes you want to not walk on. I pray that you come to look at the example of Naomi and realize that God is still at work. Even if you can't see him at work right now, he is at work. And if you will continue to seek him, he will turn your bitterness into blessing. Or maybe you're here. And the story, the chapter of your life right now is that similar to Boaz, where you have been walking with the Lord for a while. And he's positioned you in life to be a great blessing to others. I want to encourage you that if you're in that place, 
where you have been walking with the Lord and he's given you wisdom. He's given you blessings and he's, he's poured his love and his amazing grace over you in a ways that you know you don't deserve. That I want to encourage you to make the choice to position yourself to be a great blessing in the lives of other people. Because there are people all around you that are in great need that are just looking up saying, would someone please help me? And you have the opportunity to be the hands and feet of Christ to that person in their life. You have the opportunity to be a part of helping other redeem other people's pasts. So in this, this book, as we've been walking through the biblical account of Ruth, we remember we kind of have taken a break from looking at the overarching plan of God's plan to redeem. We know that God is a redeeming God. And, and I love the book of Ruth because it zooms in on the daily struggles of a specific family. And it shows how he can redeem in the daily challenges of our life. Then we come to the end of chapter four and we're going to zoom back out again and we're going to see how the struggles of this family fit into God's bigger plan. Look with me in verses 17 through 20. And so the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Solomon, Solomon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. See, God has had a plan to redeem from before the foundations of the earth were laid. This plan is not something that uh, God is Coming up with as he goes, God has a plan to redeem us. And as we have zoomed in on this family, we see their struggles. But then as we zoom back out again, we see that God has been at work redeeming. That the work and what God's doing in Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz somehow is fitting into his greater plan, his greater purpose. I love the end of chapter four because we see how it fits in. Boaz and Ruth, their descendant was David. King David, part of God's plan for his people was he was gonna give them a king. And this king was gonna be a right king. He was gonna be a righteous king. He was gonna be a good king, a good king that followed God and tried to live his life within the bounds as much as he could in a way to honor the Lord before the people. And so there struggles fit into that great plan, but we know it doesn't stop there because who else was a descendant of David? Who was a descendant of Boaz and Ruth? We go to the New Testament, we see that Jesus was a direct descendant of all of these. And Jesus was going to come because he was going to save the world from their sins. Somehow these struggles, what we've been looking at the past few weeks, their intricacies of their lives fit into the greater plan and the story that God is telling. So I want to encourage you this morning, do not get lost in the seeming triviality of your life. Your life is not trivial. Your life is fitting into the greater story that God is telling. So this morning, as we come to a close, I want us to spend our time being reminded of the greatest redeemer. 
Jesus is the greatest redeemer. He is the only redeemer that we need. For we, just like Ruth, were in a place in our lives where if someone didn't step in and save us, we were destined for destruction. And we know Jesus did just that. The Bible tells us that when we are born and as we live, we are dead in our trespasses and sin, and we are objects of God's wrath. That's what the word says. And so we're in a place of desperate need, but we don't have to live there because Jesus Christ came to live a perfect life. He lived every single moment in his life within the boundaries that God had set And he did it perfectly. And then he went to a cross and he paid the penalty for all sin. The Bible tells us that on the cross, all of the wrath of God was poured out on his son. And Jesus absorbed all of that wrath. And he died and was put to death. But then three days later, he came back to life, providing an opportunity for those who believe in him to be forgiven of their sins and to be restored to relationship with God. So this morning, as we end our time, we are going to participate in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is uh, an opportunity for us to remember Christ's sacrifice. For the night before he went to the cross, Jesus took his disciples and they got together in the upper room and he, he gave them two elements to remember him by. He says, you're not, you don't understand this now, but tomorrow after I go to the cross, you will remember And these are elements that he gave them, but he also gave the church so that we would be people that remember who we are and who he is. That night he takes bread and he breaks the bread and he gives it to his disciples. He says, this bread that you eat now is my broken body, which will be broken for you. Literally what he was saying is, on the cross, my body's going to be broken and I'm going to pay the penalty because of your sin. Because you sinned, You deserve the wrath of God, but I'm going to take that for you. And then he said after that, he took the cup and he gave them the cup. And he says, this cup represents my blood, which will be spilled for you. It's through the spilling of my blood that you can be forgiven. So this morning we remember that we are people of great need. But Jesus has stepped in to redeem us. This morning, if you're here and you have not come to a place of giving your life to Christ, allowing him to redeem you, that as we participate in this Lord's Supper, I'm going to ask that you just allow the the bread and the cup to pass you by. And instead of of, of taking this time, I want to encourage you to take that time and look inwardly into your heart and ask yourself the question, what's standing in the way of me coming to this Jesus? me, for me, bowing at the feet of Jesus and asking him to be my Lord and to be my Savior. Then I also want you to take a few moments and look around to see how others around you that are participating in the meal, how this is meaningful for us. Now we know in observing the Lord's Supper, there's nothing salvific in these elements. By taking this bread and drinking the cup, it's not going to save you. But we do these to remind us that we are people of great need and God has provided. So as we do, I'm going to pray and then we'll participate. Father, we thank you for your word and for loving us. And Father, I pray that you have this morning reminded us that we are people of great need, that our sin, 
our rebellion separate us from you. And Father, without a Redeemer, we stand to face your judgment all on our own. But this morning, God, we get to celebrate this supper, reminding us that you stepped in and you paid for our sin and you provided a way for us to be reconciled. For you who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what we remember this morning. That's what we're thankful for this morning. That it's not what we did, but it's what you did. So Father, in these next moments, draw us close. Help us to remember. In Jesus' name we pray.